Welcome to Intrepid Media, the show for the business professional. Here, we're going to talk about business topics such as leadership, sales, marketing, HR, innovation, strategy, and technology. But we're also going to riff about lifestyle too and help you look better, feel better, and live better. This show is everything the modern business professional needs, from the C-level executive to the millennial. So let's get on with the show. All right, good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Radio. I am your host, Todd Schneck. This promises to be a very interesting conversation. It's something, it's a philosophy, it's a practice that I actually believe in myself. And so I was thrilled when I became aware of uh, this gentleman's story and the book that we're principally here to talk about. I think it's got profound implications in how we do business going forward and some lessons learned here and some, I guess, provocative suggestions that he makes that I think uh, are so important, so necessary in today's business world. So going to be a very cool conversation. Say hello to my guest. His name is Stefan Arstall. He is the CEO of Tower Paddle Boards and the author of a new book called The 5-Hour Workday. Live differently, unlock productivity, and find happiness. Stefan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Todd. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Uh, I think you'll probably have more fun here than the Shark Tank, but we'll we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll determine that at the end of the conversation. So I just uh, dropped a quick little hint there about something in your background. But before we get into the book, Stefan, take a few quick seconds, tell us a bit about you, your background, and then give us an overview of a uh, of the company Tower. Yeah, so I, I founded Tower in San Diego. You know, I went to grad school out here and got out of grad school in 1999, sort of the heart of the internet boom. And I sort of dove, deep dove into internet marketing. And then I worked for a little radiology company in the internet space for about five years and then went off on my own in 2004 with a poker chip company, like high-end poker chips, an e-commerce company basically selling poker chips to consumers. You know, and I did that for about five years and I was able to compress my day down. It was a one-person company. We were doing maybe $500,000, $600,000 a year in revenue. But it was just one person. I was the shipping guy, the you know, customer service, the web guy, business development, everything. And in doing that, I just you know, figured out how to compress my day down to basically work about three days a week, about four hours a day, and run this you know, half a million dollar company. And I used the other days. And the reason I compressed the days down is not because I was lazy, but because I wanted to do more and other things and start other businesses. And so what that allowed me to do was try a number of businesses, most of which failed. And then in 2010... I started a stand-up paddleboard company, and that one took off. And so, by freeing up my day, I found another business that now is, you know, on the verge of doing ten million in sales a year. Yeah, well, it did well, and it was successful for a lot of reasons. But there is also a very cool reason. Is one of the reasons why it's, it's thriving is because it was featured on the show Shark Tank. So tell that story. Yeah, so just one day out of the blue, Shark Tank producers called me. I had never even heard of the show. This was I was on season three. And they said, hey, you know, we, we want, we're interested in, you know, this paddleboarding is taking off. We want to get a paddleboard company on here. You guys do it a little different. You know, your direct-to-consumer stuff, half-price paddleboards. Uh, we think you'd be good on the show. And, you know, I, was, I didn't know what this show was, so I was kind of like, well, you know, what kind of show would they possibly want me on? And then the guy says, well, it's on ABC on Friday nights. And I'm like, I'm right. in. <laughs> this yeah. sounds good. And then I started looking at it. And, you know, five, six weeks later, I'm pitching live to the Sharks. Two days before I pitched, I learned Mark Cuban would be on the show. So I didn't really know any of the other guys at the time, but I, Mark Cuban was uh, you know, enough of a celebrity, so he right. was sort of my target. And then I went into the Shark Tank, and I am known as the worst pitch in the history of Shark Tank that still landed a deal. <laughs> it, was, it was quite a calamity. I went in there with my you know, prepared two- to three-minute spiel, and like 
lost my train of thought about halfway through because my slideshow was off and then was like stuttering and stammering and, you know, frozen and just silent for minutes at a time. And the sharks were tearing into me. It was this really sort of dramatic scene. And I had to battle my way back. And I did. And I ended up getting a deal from Mark Cuban for $150,000 for 30% of my company, you know, valuing it at about half a million dollars at the time. And the company had, in the history of the company, we had $100,000 in lifetime sales. And then Cuban also negotiated for first right of refusal to invest in any business I raise money for in the future, which was a first in the history of Shark Tank. Huh. Well, it's a fascinating story, and it's in a sense become one of his most successful investments from Shark Tank, right? Yeah, we're one of his best investments, and we're one of the best investments really to come out of the show. The year we were on the show, we did, and the year he invested, we did 235000 in sales. That was our, our second year in business. We did 3000 the year before. Uh, and then the following year, we did $1.7 and then $3.1 and then $5.1 and then last year, $7.2 So it's been this sort of you know, breakneck growth pace. And in 2014, we were named the fastest growing company in San Diego as a surf company, which a lot of people don't even take seriously here in San Diego. Right. And, um, and then last year, we were on the Inc. 500. So we were number 239 on the Inc. 500's list of fastest growing companies in America. Very, very cool. Well, believe it or not, uh, we're not here to talk about your Shark Tank experience. We're not here to say, how do you successfully win an investment from the shark? So we're here to talk about your new book, which is which is in alignment with the philosophy of, of the company, actually. And it's, and it's something that you applied there. And so, so again, the book is called The Five-Hour Workday, Live Differently, Unlock Productivity, and Find Happiness. So, Stefan, tell a story about why you had to write this book. Sure. So, so what our paddleboard is, our company is, and what we pitched on Shark Tank is a paddleboard company, stand-up paddleboards. Uh, it's this new, you know, water sport, and we've sort of evolved from that, you know, basic paddleboard company to a more of a beach lifestyle company where we sell like snorkel masks and surfboards and skateboards and bikes, and we're expanding into anything beach lifestyle. And so we got to a point where we had this high growth. We knew we could grow fast, and we knew we had a, a pretty good position within the paddleboard. But how do we take a $10 million company and make that into a $100 million company? And so I started reading a lot about you know, branding and how do, um, how do these big brands really make that, sort of cross that chasm. And a big part that, of the things that I read was that you really had to you know, define your brand you know, by what you do, uh, sort of brand as business. And here we are, a beach lifestyle company that's telling everybody, like, you know, get out of the office, go out paddle boarding, enjoy your life, live this more extraordinary life. I mean, we have a magazine called Tower Magazine at the URL tower.life, which all we talk about is how to live a more extraordinary life, travel, health, all of this stuff. And yet, we were in this office a block from the beach, you know, working startup hours, you know, coming in at eight, getting out at six, you know, hardcore uh, working. So we weren't really living our brand. And we said, okay, if we want to become this big brand, we've got to figure out how to live our brand. And because I had had that earlier business, I mentioned the, the poker chip business, where I had compressed my own workday as a one-person company. Now there's 11 people in a company. But everybody in this company does tasks that I used to do. And I was able to compress my workday. And I, I, we just sort of came to the conclusion that why can't we do that as a company-wide thing? And so we're going to do this experiment. And so a year ago, in June... I just sort of announced, you know, overnight that we're going we're gonna to compress our day. We're going to work a five-hour day. Everybody's going to work 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. straight through. There's no lunch. And I want you, when you come into work, I want you to, you know, get rid of all the waste. 
and I'm going to basically give you this huge chunk of your day back. So you have from one o'clock, you know, till you go to sleep, you got nine, ten hours every day during the week, and then you have your weekends. This should change your life. And in exchange, I want you to get the same amount of work you were done in, doing in you know our eight, ten hour day in five hours. This is the trade, and we're going to do a three month experiment here. And then in the fall, we're going to roll back to the eight hour day. And it worked so well that we just we just kept going with it. And then, you know, when I was writing, I, I write in a lot of business magazines, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, you know, the Washington Post and stuff. And so I was writing articles about, you know, what we were doing this five-hour workday. And it really resonated with people. I wrote an article on Mashable about it. And it got 15,000 social shares. And I'm not a, like a well-known writer. So usually I'll get 50 social shares. Right, you know? right, right, right. So I was like, you know, holy cow, maybe we're on something. This is working extraordinarily well for us. We're this fast-growing company. It's not stalling our growth at all. And all of a sudden, everybody has this, this greater life. And then when we really started to examine it, it's, you know, if you look at most companies out there, people are just wasting an extraordinary amount of time. Our productivity, and I talk about this in the book, but our productivity has just gone off the charts in sort of the knowledge worker world over the last, you know, 40 years, all workers in America, productivity is up 80%. And that's, you know, blue collar and white collar workers. And if you just take, you know, knowledge workers, it's probably three to 400%. I mean, we're massively more productive. We can now do in two to three hours what used to take us 10 hours. And what has changed? Well, you know, wages have increased 11%. So all of the, you know, the profits of this more efficiency and higher productivity have gone to the top. And what we have is, you know, the billionaire is the new millionaire. You know, companies are just stockpiling cash. I, as a business owner, am experiencing this. I mean, I could run this, you know, $10 million business with five people. And I could pay each of those people, you know, $40,000 a year and just sort of take all the profits myself. But I started to just look at this. Hey, maybe we have an opportunity here to, to really sort of give everybody in my company sort of what I had created for myself as an entrepreneur. And wouldn't that be cool if we could do that? And then we started doing it. It was successful. And I said, hey, we need to go make this a little more public. For one, it you know, spreads our brand message, which is exactly what we're telling people to do. Go out, change how you live. Go out and live this more extraordinary life. You know, buy our paddleboard so you've got you know, something to do uh, you know, for your hobby. So it perfectly dovetails with our brand. But I think it's something that a lot of knowledge workers resonate with. And I think it can be you know, a force of change. Well, it's a fascinating story, and and Stefan, I have a thousand directions I could take this conversation. I got to figure out where I want to go next. I mean, it's a fascinating story, and I imagine that there's a lot of people who hear it and say, "Oh, well, that sounds cool," but yeah, for a small little California company that you know sells surf stuff, sure, that makes all the sense in the world, but not in my company. My company is a real business with real people. I, we could never get away with that. What do you say to that naysayer who just says, "Oh, that's cool and all that," and boy, it would be great sure but it just we just can't do it here yeah and that, and i get that all the time right. and what what they say is you know why why the five-hour work day? doesn't make any sense you know and the better question really there is why not and when you ask you know why not the five-hour work day the natural question is why are we working the eight-hour day and that's the question that i really delved into in this book and the reality is the eight-hour work day is not you know, universal around the world. Countries work different hours. You know, in India, they work six, 10 hour days. In China, they work like six, 12 hour days. Mexico, six, eight hour days. In France, they work a 35 hour week. It's different in every country. So people assume that eight hours is how everybody works in the world and even how we've always worked in America. But the reality is it was invented. In 1914, you know, Henry Ford basically invented the eight hour workday and rolled it out across, you know, 
large industries. Prior to that, and this was, you know, in factories and we were sort of going through the industrial revolution, workers were working 10 to 16 hours a day, six days a week in America. And they, you know, weren't highly productive, but then the industrial revolution came along. And all of a sudden the assembly line, you know, wasn't basically invented. And those 10 to 16 hours a days were all of a sudden at an assembly line pace. So the pace had picked up and you couldn't like, you know, slack off and, you know, lean on a broom. And what happened was it became a very unhealthy work environment because people were being overworked and worked to death. In the early 1900s, one half of 1% of the U.S. population was being maimed or dying on the factory floor. It was this sort of real tragedy. And at the same time, you know, this was the, the era of robber barons. All of the profits were being put to the top. So you had productivity jump up like tenfold and we didn't change working hours. And you know, people were suffering and dying. The workers were, and the owners were getting, were getting wealthy. That is what happened with the Industrial Revolution. Ford you know, said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do a, a renegotiation with labor. We're going to do an eight-hour workday, and we're going to pay workers double. And what he did was change an entire society. And he created basically the consumer class. Because before, where everybody was working, now they had all this free time and free weekends to you know, go out and spend money. And that is really what even drives the US economy today. We're a consumer-driven you know, economy. So fast forward 100 years, we've gone through the exact, uh, not the exact same, but very similar type of productivity gains. But this time in the knowledge working world and with the internet and information tools and smartphones and stuff like that. And so it's made these knowledge workers massively more productive. And the funny thing is the workers are working longer and longer hours. Not only are we taking you know, our laptops and cell phones home with us and on vacation and answering phones at you know, midnight and doing text messaging and you know, emails on the weekend, so we're really working almost a 24-hour clock, but we're working longer hours. We're no longer working a 40-hour work week. On average, people work a 47-hour work week. You know, half of America works more than a 50-hour work week, and 25% of America works more than a 60-hour work week. We're being overworked. And there's a lot of societal ills that are coming out of this, just mental health, you know, drug abuse, prescription abuse, obesity, stress-related diseases, unhappy children. There's a study that I talk about in the book that talks about you know, the 29 most developed countries in the world, and they rank child happiness in those countries. The U.S. places 26th on that. We're the wealthiest country in the world, you know, a free country, and our children are unhappy. And you've you got to ask, why is this? I mean, and the conclusion, you know, in my mind is that we've become this sort of work-obsessed society that is about working harder and making a little more money and thinking that that's going to drive happiness when it really doesn't. And what people really need is they need, you know, their time back. Yeah. Uh, all right. We'll dive into more of this after the break. So Stefan Arstall and I will return after this short break. We'll be right back. Think Next, Act Now is an entrepreneurial movement. It is a teaching platform, a coaching forum that emphasizes action. And the link between thought and action makes a difference in the outcome you determine or the result that's determined for you. When you see, seize, and create opportunity for yourself, you take a big step toward becoming recession-proof and changing your life. If you are determined to make a change in your life, think next, act now will provide the essential toolkit to move your life forward. Only realized potential cashes the check of reality. Now is the time to realize your potential. Think next, act now, and go always forward. To learn more, 
go to BillWoodich.com. That's BillWoodich.com. All right, I am back with Stefan Arstall, the author of a new book called The Five-Hour Workday, Live Differently, Unlock Productivity, and Find Happiness. So let's talk about happiness for a second. So there's a, I guess there's a dedication at the beginning of the book that says, To life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that beautiful dream we somehow lost along the way. Why are we so damn afraid of pursuing happiness in this country. I mean, we closed uh, the first segment with this, all the, the negative repercussions of these longer and longer hours that we're working. Why, as management, as someone running an organization, managing people, employing people, why are we so afraid to take steps to make them happy? Why, why is that such a problem here? Well, I think it's just sort of been a long sort of brainwashing that, that we've gone through. Like, you know, when the, the first, like, you know, Americans and adventurers sort of came to the U.S., it was basically to es- escape, like, you know, religious persecution, but also this sort of work-obsessed, uh, what, what Europe had become. And they wanted to come out here and basically, you know, work to live, not live to work, which is, which is what had happened. And throughout human history, and I talk about sort of the history of work in the book, if you look back at like, you know, the ancient Greek society, work was considered a curse. If you worked, you were considered unsuccessful. And this was throughout the Greek ages and for a thousand years after. And then in like the 1600s, you know, the, the sort of Protestant work ethic was sort of put upon people. Like all of a sudden, you know, to work was holy and this was the way you were going to, you know, enhance your life. And you should, you know, your family and happiness and everything should be deferred to your job. Your job is the most important thing. And it was basically sort of brainwashing people to just sort of make them economic slaves. Right, right. And this, and this happened, you know, for, you know, four or five hundred years. People escaped to America to just sort of actually get away from that originally. Now, America has become this, you know, economic superpower. And it's, I think it's just sort of a drug. You know, the, the, the more money, a little more success. And it's, you know, capitalism and consumerism gone rampant. Where back in the 1900s, if you made, you know, 20% more money, your life absolutely, uh, your quality of life absolutely increased. And there are countries around the world right now where the, the scarcity problem is money. But in the U.S., the scarcity problem is no longer money. I mean, even people on welfare have, you know, their kids have iPhones. It's, you know, we, we, we say it's like tough living, but to, to cover your basics is actually very, very easy today. And to get a decent quality of life in, in the U.S. is, is very easy. But... We, we seem to think, and this is how our, our companies are designed, that more money equals more happiness. And there have been studies about this that up to about $75,000 a year, that is true. But beyond that, you're really getting no more happiness. But that is what we keep pushing after. You know, you're going to make 100000 then you want to make 200000 and you're going to go buy, you know, some fancy car or all of these sort of material possessions that really add zero to your happiness. So... We are actually trying to do things that, that make us happy, but I think we've, we've lost touch with what really does make us happy and really what is you know, productive and important in society. Right now in America, we are very narrowly defined as successful by you know, how much money we make, what we do for a living. Well, it's unfortunate that it's unfolded that way, and, and we could talk for hours about how we got there and how you combat that. I think what you've determined is what's really scarce in our society is time, time to do something that that you've determined is impactful and meaningful to you, even if it's 
relaxing and reading a book or paddleboarding or whatever whatever you determine you want to be doing with your time you just don't have it and, and it, it's almost like the stigma that well if you guys out there lazing about well then he's not serious he's not successful and it's unfortunate i think that i think it's slowly changing i think there's I think I think there's hope that in the next several years that that may become less of an issue. Let me ask you this: so, I mean, what you've what you've proclaimed is that by having shifted to a five-hour workday, you're now more profitable, you're far more productive, and your employees are happier, healthier, and more loyal. And I, I imagine most people say most people would say, "Eh, he's full of it." Explain explain exactly how that happens, even though you're putting in less time. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly what people, their reaction to this is because it's hard for them to let go of this, this eight-hour workday, which they consider just, you know, true. This is exactly how it's always been. This is how it should always be. Any deviation from this is there's something wrong here. So they look at the five-hour workday as a part-time job. And, I, you know, the reason we're doing this in this company is because, you know, we're one of the fastest-growing companies in the nation. And if we can do this and build the biggest beach lifestyle brand in the world working this, you know, the proof is in the pudding there. Right. You know, we're, we're, we're outpacing you and we're working less than you. You're doing it wrong is, is the message here. And why it works. Okay. So as and entrepreneurs all over the world are doing this and, you know, guys like you with a podcast, if you don't have sort of any sort of boss over your head, you all of a sudden start to just focus on productivity. It's no longer about how many hours you are clocking. It's, you know, how you can maximize output for minimum input. And, you just keep ratcheting that up. And that's what I did, you know, in my poker chip company and through the years. And then when I, we rolled this out to my employees, that's what I taught them all to do. And essentially what you're doing here is you're putting a constraint, a time constraint on getting something done. And a time constraint creates, you know, a, a, a faster pace of working in the exact same way that a money constraint on like small startups creates competitive advantage. If you, if you look at the world right now and how the world operates, if you have a $100 million company with you know, 500, 1,000 people in it, and you know, they just seem this dominant company, and then you have three guys in a garage with you know, no budget and no funding, and they're going after some target, which of those two wins? And the, the funny thing is, in our society, the three guys in the garage are winning like, at an alarming rate. And why is that? It doesn't make sense. They don't have the resources. They don't have the manpower. But by having this constraint on money, it forces them to find creative solutions um, to problems. And once they find those creative solutions, that creative solution becomes a competitive advantage. Whereas, you know, in the larger corporations that are well-funded and, you know, the worst case scenario is like a governmental, you know, project that has unlimited funding, unlimited people, they have to find no hacks. It's just the model of inefficiency. And then you have these, these people that have constraints that create these creative solutions. Everybody sort of understands that in like the economic sense. Like if you... If you constrain capital, you have to find creative solutions. But in time, it's the same thing. If you constrain time, like if you're in college and it's finals week and you've got, you know, you pushed your paper back till, you know, finals week and you've got 24 hours to do a paper, somehow you crank that paper out in 24 hours. You know, I talk about this in the book, like different entrepreneurs use different ways of like managing their email. And one guy I know, he goes to a coffee shop with his laptop that only has like a 90 minute battery life on his laptop. And that's how he does email every day. So he has 90 minutes to process all his emails, whether, whether he gets 50 or whether he gets 500. And it forces him to knock that out in a certain amount of time. This is what the five-hour day is doing. I, everybody in, the, in my company is, is a you know, very high performer. But I told them, 
I want you to get the same amount done in this five hours, and you've got to figure out solutions. And it's not just knowledge workers. We have a, we have a storefront, so we just change the hours to five hours. Now we make our customers come in there at a faster clip. We answer the phones only for five hours. We have a shipping department. They've got to get you know, 500 packages out. You've got to figure out how to get that in five hours. They start figuring out how to use the software they have, how to identify other software that will work better, how to reorganize the warehouse, how to do things in, in just a little different way that you know, most companies are just throwing people and money at things and they're not finding these, these competitive hacks because there's no incentive to do that and there's no reason to do that. And, but the owners of companies don't care because you know, profitability is still soaring, productivity is still soaring, but you've got all of these workers you know, working eight to 10 hour days, accomplishing two to three hours of work, spending the rest of the time online shopping on Facebook, fantasy football, wasting time at work, just filling hours. Well, and see, that's the thing. I mean, I, I absolutely get how putting time constraints on you forces you to be, work more efficiently and to actually concentrate and get your work done. That makes all the sense in the world. That I've, I use that same philosophy in some of the things that I do. I think the other thing, too, though, is that if you have this belief or this understanding that, well, it's an eight-hour day, and that's the rules, and that's what we got to do. And, and so you find yourself, because I'm thinking back to when I was managing people in, a, in, a, in what I understood to be an eight-hour day. I, I had to find things for them to do to fill time. And, and it wasn't important to the mission and purpose of the business or even achieving a profit. I mean, so you, you know, there's been other examinations of, of a more limited work week. And, and the idea being is, hey, just seek understanding of what your management expects you to achieve. I, I, need you to, I need you to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And if it takes you 40 hours, it takes you 40 hours. But if you can get it done in 10 hours, well, then you can take 40 hours off. I don't care. I mean, so that's the other problem, too, right, is that, is that this understanding – I've got to fill this eight forty hour work week as part of the problem, right? And that's where you get that's where you get wasted time. People get frustrated by that. They don't achieve any meaning. They get, and that's why they dread Sunday nights because oh, yeah, I got to go to work tomorrow. Ugh. I mean, that's all that's all feeds into that, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly true. And, and the funny things is like companies, you know, want people to you know want to pay them as li- as little as possible and work them as much as possible. So a lot of this sort of feeds into the like they don't really care if you're there ten hours. That's better for the company. But is it really, you know, better for the company? Because there's workarounds that are already being worked into the system that everybody is just sort of glossing over. Uh, flex time is a good example. You know, people are figuring out ways to remove themselves from the office, and you know, so really do the two to three hours of, of work, and you know, meet the same productivity goals and look shining to their bosses or whatever, but not clock these hours. Remote working, uh, telecommuting, the exact same thing. This is why people are getting out of the offices. Uh, it's because every, it's this, it's this like collective delusion that we all actually do eight to ten hours of work when people. It's like a little secret. Okay, you know we only we know we only do about two to three hours of work. Right. So we're going to get out of here, actually do that, and get our lives back. So people are trying to figure out ways to game the system here. But I think there's a lot of downsides to companies for that. You know, the I think in a in a great like knowledge working company today. You want all of these creative people in the same room at the same time. It's like a football team going onto the field because the, the creative the creativity happens in moments. You know, it's, it's able. It's you turn around to the person behind you, throw an idea past them, get their feedback. You know, you have a customer call in; they need something. You go to one person, get that help, get right back to the customer. You close something in a minute. If people aren't in the same room, that little one-minute conversation becomes, "Hey, I'll get back to you tomorrow when I can get a hold of this person," and that. So that extends, you know, that little one-minute thing into a 24-hour thing, 
and the assembly line of the knowledge working world is information flow. It's how fast you can, you can flow information. And this is exactly why people you know, field emails in the evenings and on weekends because you know if you don't field an email for three days, you've just slowed down the whole process by three days. But if you can answer an email you know, at 10 o'clock at night, somebody will get back to you in the middle of the night and by the time you get in the morning, that whole process is done. So that is the assembly line of today. And what we're doing is we've just moved to almost like a 24-hour work cycle and it, it needs to be reset. And when I talk about a five-hour workday, this is a baseline, okay? So people ask like, well, okay, how is your company you know, still productive? If, if I've taught everybody in my company to do you know, two to three days of work in five hours uh, because you know, it's sort of the productivity tools that we're using and then all of a sudden we have crunch time and we'll put in a 50, 60-hour week, no problem. You know, these people can do three weeks of work in a week. And that's what you're trying to do. And this is also a recruitment and retention strategy. I mean, we're doing a five-hour workday and nobody else in our city is doing a five-hour workday yet. So, you know, the, the people, and in every company out there, there's just people that do two to three times the work of everybody else. And they're all working the same hours. They may make a little premium. Maybe they get 30% more in wages. But it's really sort of a raw deal to those high-performing people. And then a company like mine comes along. I'm going to steal those people from every other company. Because I say, here's, here's a new like, negotiation for you. You come in, you work 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., you, know, you can work another job on the side. You can drive Uber, you can you know, go coach Little League, you can do whatever is of interest to you. Go surfing, you know, do art, whatever you want to do. Some of these other productive things in society. And that's a great renegotiation for people. It helps us keep people and it helps us attract people. And this is exactly why Henry Ford roll down the, the work hour right. is because he wanted to attract all of the best workers in the nation. After, a month after they rolled that out, they had you know, a line of like 15,000 workers lining up to work at Ford. And he went from being like a competitive car company over a period of seven years to having 61% of the auto industry in the US. Yeah. It was a very effective strategy. Absolutely. And, and you can apply the, the five-hour workday to, to that model as well. See, a lot of, we, we touched on this at the top half of the show. A lot of people would say, oh, sure, I, I think it's a cool idea, and I can imagine a company where it would work. So you know, I'm thinking of my little media company where I have a team of oh, less than 10. We all work from our home offices, and it, it makes sense to do it for something like that. Yeah. But someone says, but, you know, I have this large enterprise with thousands of employees. No way it could work here. What, what, do you, what say you on that? I mean, my challenge to companies is, is to do a test, and uh, like a risk-free test, and just say summer hours. That's how we rolled it out, um, because I was fearful, too, that you know, this won't work, and then I've given the workers something, I can't take it back, right? But if you do a three-month summer hours test, just say, okay, for this summer, everybody's going to get off at 1 p.m., and then in the fall, we're going we're gonna to roll back to regular hours, but that's the give, and my ask is, you got to figure out how to accomplish everything you're doing today in five hours. And anybody that can't will be fired. And that's exactly what I told my employees. And then you actually do that test and actually roll back to the regular hours. I guarantee you, you know, if you have a thousand employees or whatever, those thousand employees are going to figure out creative solutions to do their job faster because, you know, walking out of the door at one o'clock every day is like pure joy to a lot of people. And so they'll figure out those productivity hacks. And when you roll back to the eight, 10 hour days, those people are going to be working twice as fast. They're going to have identified hacks that have been around for 10 years that nobody is looking at. Um, you know, for the book, I have a, a website called 5hourworkday.com. And on there, people can go and they can you know, download the first 50 pages of the book. But then they also get this, I don't know, it's a 30 or 40 page PDF document 
that details, it's like 35 or 36 productivity tools that we use at Tower that are just these sort of, sort of the tools of the trade and how we're able to be this fast-growing company working these reduced hours. And there are tools on there that you know, have been around for a decade but that nobody is using. And these are massive you know, productivity tools. I can give you, you know, an example of one if you'd like. Absolutely. So one tool we use for sourcing, we make a lot of products you know, overseas and then you know, bring them here and sell them. The site is called panjiva.com. So P-A-N-J-I-V-A.com. And it's essentially any container that comes into the country, it has to be public information, where it came from, where it's going to, what the weight of it is, and sort of a general description of, of, of what's in the contents. And this, because of 911, you know, Homeland Security came out, everything was made public, right? So what Panjiva does is they aggregate all of this data. And then so if I'm you know, looking to start a paddleboard company, I go onto Panjiva and I type in paddleboards, and it will tell me every shipment that's come into the country of, of paddleboards, and it will tell me where they're coming from and where they're going to. And then I can zero in on a manufacturer that's you know, making a lot of shipments of paddleboards, and then it will show me everybody they're supplying over time, whether their shipments are going up, whether their shipments are going down, and then I can zero in on my competitor and find out where my competitor sources all of their products. I mean, it's almost like magical data. You can almost get market share data with this. And so this is how you know, we source you know, good factories. And you can basically get a quality score on the factory because you know if they're supplying to you know, quality companies and their shipments are going up over time, that's a good factory. If shipments are going down over time, bad factory, stay away from that factory. So prior to this, how people used to source, I mean, they would literally you know, fly to China, have to have a man in China. It's a, a year, two, three year process to, to finally nail down a good factory and get good quality and get everything dialed in. I mean, that's how you build value in a company is you build those things up. Now you can do that same thing in literally an afternoon. And the middle ground here between the old way of doing it and the Panjiba way of doing it is something called Alibaba. And Alibaba, a very valuable company, it was the biggest IPO in the history of the world. Alibaba basically connected overseas manufacturers with U.S. companies. But if I type paddleboards into Alibaba, it shows me 2,000 companies, you know, quote companies that make paddleboards, which includes, you know, scammers, good, good factories, bad factories, middlemen, all of this, you know, wild, wild west type stuff. This is how most people source today, and it's leaps and bounds forward from, you know, three years and 25 trips to China and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. But Panjiva's been around for 10 years. I've been sourcing since 2004 out of China. The first year I went to China was last year. Wow. Well, see, I think part of the lesson here, Stefan, and you'd probably agree with me, is if you are looking at an individual who cannot get their expected work done in a five-hour workday, and or if you're looking at an organization or a team that can't get their work done in a, in a more compact schedule, uh, they're probably doing something wrong, right? I mean, this, this could be a way to also root out people who are inefficient and are maybe not up to the job. And that's maybe a harsh way of looking at it, but you and I both know that's probably, probably reality. Well, this is a fascinating conversation. I, I, I've, I've been living under this kind of a, of a, of a weekly time frame myself for several years, and, and, it, and it is game-changing. And it's afforded my wife and I the opportunity to do a lot of interesting things and enjoy our life more. And frankly, 
to find happiness. Uh, and we were able to make a, a big move. We lived in Atlanta for a long time, and now we've moved to Chicago. We live in a high rise. We got rid of our cars. We were just diving into this amazing city. And and uh, a shorter workday has made all that possible. And yet we're still successful. We're still achieving what we need to achieve. And in fact, we're doing better. So so I can vouch for this idea and, and this uh, and I get it. It's a big mindset shit for a lot of people. But the fact remains, you just got to draw a line in the sand and, and think think about doing it differently. And, and frankly, I would argue, and you'd probably agree, you got you have to think differently anyway. I mean, if you, and if you don't, you're going to fall behind and you're, you're going to lose, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, the only way you're going to compete is doing things a little differently than everybody else. And I think that you made a, you made a very important point. Like, this is not just an incremental change. Like, most people won't say, well, okay, five hours, I used to work eight hours. That's, what's the difference, really? But right now, you know, we're going to work at, you know, eight o'clock and getting home at six, you know, and you barely have any time to do anything during the week. It's not an incremental change to go working 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., where you literally have nine to 10 hours every day. It's basically a work week that's better than most people's vacation weeks. Right. This is a 10x change. This actually opens up your entire you know, life to do stuff that you're passionate about that. And if you're an entrepreneur like me, that may be working more. You know, I'm not saying you, know, you should only work five hours a week. If you love working and you love building businesses, do that. But if you love music, do that. If you love raising children, do that. There's all of these other productive things in society you know, social work, volunteer work that we can open up by sort of changing the workday. And it's, it's, it's really just a choice. Right yeah. now, you know, we're, we're basically economic slaves. We've been trained and indoctrinated into this, you know, eight-hour workday, work harder, that's what you're supposed to do. But it's choice. I mean, you can just say, no, I reject that. And another point you made there is that there's going to be people that just feel they just can't you know, do their work in, in five hours. It's just not possible. I have friends that just look at this and they just say, well, it's, it's not possible in my, you know, industry or what I do. And my, you know, suggestion to them is, why don't you try it for a week? And just, just you know, as an experiment, just say, okay, I got to figure out how the hell I'm going to get all this done. I've only got five hours and just try it and see what happens. Your pace of work will increase. You will stop doing the wasteful things and you will start seeking out like you know software solutions or you know reorganize stuff. You'll figure out ways, and that's what this is. This is about. Yeah, it's, no doubt about uh, it. It's opening the, your mind. I think the other problem, Stefan, is that there are people that are afraid of all that time. They don't know what to do with all that time because they're just not used to that mindset. And 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 the point you just made a second ago is, is do whatever it is that makes you happy. The whole freaking point of this is to find happiness, right? I mean, it says right there on the cover. That's what this is all about. And and it's okay. It's allowed. <laughs> it's, 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 it's permitted to find happiness. So anyway, good stuff. That is a, that's a great point, Todd. I want to I touch on that because that is the scariest thing to people because we have become such a work-obsessed culture, and I include myself in this. And this is something that entrepreneurs can really – dig themselves a, a hole in because you can work 80 to 100 hours a week when you're starting a business and you get your life really out of balance and it becomes only about work and then you have free time and you honestly you don't have friends you don't have a life you know you don't have healthy relationships you don't have other hobbies and you're like i don't know what to do and <laughs> then it's filling that time is scary because you've created this life that's so one-dimensional but it's not it's not a great life so what the you know the five hour workday is about is opening your life back up and you're honestly going to be bored like you know you're going to go home and you're going to watch TV or do something you're like Jesus I should just be working right. but 
what you need to do is you need to open that up because once you open up that time, then you'll be like, well, I'm kind of bored. I've got all this time. You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll go to the gym. You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll cook dinner tonight instead of doing that. Maybe I'll learn to cook. Maybe I'll start dating. Maybe I'll do all of these things that you should have already been doing, um, but you need to open up that time and you know go back to being a kid again. Be bored and then figure out you know what the hell it is that you really want to do with your free time, as opposed to the only thing that you know doing is working. Right. And I think that's a very unhealthy thing. Well, I can make the case that if you if you quote find time to be bored, that's when your mind starts thinking. That's when you start creating. That's when you start innovating. So I think that I think that there's science to say letting your mind wander like that, it's sort of like a meditation almost. And and being bored and, and doing fun things, and like you said, be be childlike again. To me, that that is the modern parlance for for creative opportunity for for creative thinking. So, gosh. Stefan, we could talk for another for hours more about some of this stuff, and, and grateful for your time, grateful for uh, for you writing this book. Before I let you go, how can people contact you? Should they have questions? Where can they learn more about all the things going on with Tower? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on a copy of the Five Hour Workday? Yeah, so the the Five Hour Workday book launches on July fifteenth. You can go to fivehourworkday.com, get the first fifty pages there, and it also links to Amazon where you can pre buy the book. But the, the official launch date is, is a couple weeks away. You know, our, our paddleboard company, the main site is towerpaddleboards.com. And then our magazine is tower.life. And that's a beach lifestyle magazine. And that really is a magazine that's designed to help you figure out things to do once you compress your day. And you have all this free time. What are you going to do? How are you going to live this extraordinary life? That's really what that magazine is about. Sort of teaching people how to live again. Outstanding. Stefan Arstall, CEO of Tower Paddle Boards and the author of the upcoming book, The Five Hour Workday Live Differently, Unlock Productivity, and Find Happiness. And God damn it, get out there and find happiness. All right, Stefan, great to have you. Thanks for stopping by. Awesome. Thanks for the invite, Todd. It was my pleasure. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Stefan Arstall, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Radio. Thank you for listening to Intrepid Media. We appreciate your attention. To receive everything we do, simply go to IntrepidMailingList.com. That's IntrepidMailingList.com and sign up. You can also find us at Intrepid.media and on iTunes. And to support the important work we do on your behalf, a rating and review on iTunes will help spread our work far and wide. Again, we certainly appreciate your support. Now get out there, be intrepid, and we'll see you next time.